each Friday we kick off this show by speaking to our friends from 4SA, that's Freedom of Religion South Africa. They are a legal advocacy organization which works to protect and promote your constitutional right to religious freedom in South Africa. And this morning we are joined by Michael Swain. Michael is the executive director of 4SA. Michael studied law abroad. Michael has been successful in business and he is a co-founder of the His People Every Nation Church Movement in South Africa. Michael, it's good to be joined with well, with you. It's good to be joined by you this morning. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you, Mark. And uh, I'm also in Johannesburg, so I'm also sweltering in the heat here. But That's it's right. Praying along with all of God's water. saints for rain <laughs> to fall <laughs> in the city of gold. Well, no, the city of gold is Johannesburg. I'm not 100% sure what Pretoria is. The city of the... Um, of the jacaranda <laughs> but it is good to have it's you with strange. us so this morning we're going to be talking about anti-money laundering and combating of terrorism a financing bill uh, which is uh, on the cards at the moment uh, i'm guessing uh, well i mean I, I i almost couldn't think of what that might have to do with uh, a threat to religious freedom but i know that you guys have picked up on the bill that it certainly does so maybe you could begin by just explaining to us so, Michael, what's this bill all about? Well, essentially, this bill is about trying to make sure, and again, it's a noble cause, uh, to make sure that nonprofits aren't used by terrorist organizations uh, and to finance or to launder money through them for terrorist purposes. So you'd think absolutely no problem with that. Um, but as always, the devil is in the details. And one of the things that we do when legislation comes out is we look very closely to see how any bill or piece of legislation or policy or uh, report or what have you potentially is going to affect the religious sector. And in this instance, uh, unfortunately, we recognize and, and, and perceive that there are various aspects of this bill which will potentially at least violate the constitutional rights of religious organizations particularly the right to freedom of religion, obviously, uh, which is section 15, as well as association, that's section 18, uh, and also the ability of organizations and communities to practice their religion to form associations, which is section 31. So these rights, obviously, we examine them in the light of these rights. We look at them through the lens of these rights. Uh, and when we see that there are issues in a bill, in this particular case, that are concerning, then obviously we alert uh, the religious community, the um, organizations, which of course make up m most of the public profile of religious, um, the religious community, and let them know that there is this opportunity to comment, because comments are still open for a very short window of time, only until the 10th of October. Well, Michael, maybe we can get into some of those devilish details, and you can tell us what are the concerns that Freedom of Religion South Africa has identified in this particular bill? So the main thing is that every non-profit organization must register according to this bill. And typically the definition that is given to a non-profit organization uh, comes out of the NPO Act. And it's very broad. It's a, a trust company or other association of persons 
established for a public purpose, that obviously be a church, and the income and property of which are not distributable to its members or office bearers, except as reasonable compensation for services, rendered, i.e. salaries. Mm. That, that's almost every single church that pays any member a salary. And so obviously the all churches fall into this particular um, ambit of definition. And the problem with that is that it actually is a duplication of other uh, forms of association and other basically requirements that many churches already have. And by the way, there is a good reason which we'll come to why uh, some uh, churches do not choose to register uh, as NPOs uh, well, and NGOs. I mean, you, um, you're but, reminding yeah. me of, of material that I think 4SA might have published a number of years ago that certainly gave guidance to us uh, as Crystal Park Baptist Church when I was a, a, a pastor of a smaller congregation um, where we had to make the decision between NPO and PBO, a public benefit organization or a not-for-profit organization. And there were kind of um, uh, benefits and disadvantages and a decision had to be made between those two, if I remember correctly. Um, but but yes. But you have raised this idea of duplication um, and, and that really concerns me the amount of red tape that the government seems to be introducing uh, to for religious organizations to adhere to um, I, I mean we already do have to account to other government institutions don't we well exactly and and and, and this is again one of the problems is that if you have to now register under this act there's a lot of red tape and already, look, there, there are certain ways that you as a church can basically exist as an association. It can be a voluntary association, it can be a trust, or it can be some form of non-profit company. So there are legal entities, and each of those has, as you say, their own requirements, um, as well as financial burdens. So if you're a trust, you're obviously bound by the master's office. Um, there's the Companies and Intellectual Property uh, Commission called, known as SIPSI. Obviously, there's SARS, the, the, the Revenue Service. Yes. So there's a lot of red tape involved in this. And if you then have to register as well uh, as an NPO, that just adds another whole raft of stuff that you're going to have to do, accounting, um, financial statements regularly presented, narrative reports on your activities, uh, office bearers, changes of office bearers. And so, again... What we cannot see is any tangible benefit to uh, any religious organization uh, that will be warranted, if you like, for all the red tape and, of course, the, let's let's be honest, the expertise, uh, the level of expertise or knowledge or understanding that it takes to fulfill all these um, compliance requirements, which are, which are often pretty complicated. And bear in mind, every single person, every single organization will be caught in this net. And many of our organizations, particularly churches, simply aren't set up with that type of capacity. And yet, unfortunately, which is often the case, there's a criminal sanction thrown in the end, which says that if you don't comply, then potentially you can be jailed or face a fine. So uh, it, it, it just seems to be an onerous burden with a potential mm. pretty hefty sanction at, at, at the back end without really any tangible benefit and also no real assistance as to how you can actually go about or to help you go about being compliant uh, e even if you would want to which we would assume that people would because religious leaders as we know are you know very much law-abiding people well i mean you raise a you raise a great point um 
religious leaders are law-abiding people, there will be a desire to comply to whatever laws are put in front of us. The difficulty, though, is, uh, I, I mean, the, the kind of average church um, in South Africa isn't a an organization of 200, you know, attendees on a Sunday, uh, 100-plus members with, with a lot of capacity to maybe employ either a treasurer or a financial officer um, or the ability to to kind of adhere to very difficult uh, legislative frameworks which require administrative like large like reams of administrative oversight M- most churches are are actually teeny tiny <laughs> and i I'm, I'm i'm i just can't fathom i can't understand how how compliance will will be even possible uh, in many of the situations and circumstances that i see around me but even if we had to exclude the local church size and the difficulty for local churches to comply, doesn't the the state um, have serious difficulties in terms of its ability to um, to 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 kind of make sure that there will be compliance? So if one uh, also wants to say that the state need to pick one route and stick with it, um, uh, how do they even have the manpower to register all the organizations like as MPOs and to ensure compliance of all of these churches? I mean, I, I stand corrected, Michael, but there's, there's, there's literally... Um, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of microorganisms of local churches uh, in this country. How are they going to manage all of that? Well, I mean, th- that is a very good question. And the other question is, why would they even need to want to try to manage it? Look, obviously, if you want to retain a non-tax status, you have to register with SARS. But what will the Department of Social Development achieve uh, other than to give government greater control over religious organizations. And as as you say, th- they don't have uh, probably either the expertise or the manpower uh, to pick up, for example, fraud and money laundering. I mean, if, if SARS isn't picking it up, what's the likelihood of the Department of Social Development picking it up? Very slim. So the, the, the challenge is here as well that it, it also gives a, an open door for the state to interfere in a faith organization potentially doctrinal matters. Well, well maybe flesh, flesh that, that is, out, please, because obviously that then becomes very concerning to local churches who want to see some level of separation between the church and the state, particularly as it comes to state interference. You see, you see one of the things that this um, potential uh, law will do, and which the NPO uh, Act gives, is... DSD, the population, but the power to require uh, those people registering to amend their constitutions. And of course, many church con- constitutions or M- MOIs are based upon their religious beliefs and doctrines. Mm. And they obviously prescribe, for example, things like what requirements there would be for membership, what requirements there would be for leadership and office bearers and so on and so forth. And so if the state can potentially force you as a as an organization to amend that then obviously in so doing they would be interfering with your religious freedom rights and your autonomy and typically that's something that the state has shied away from Uh, in in fact in law we have something called the doctrine of entanglement which essentially prevents the state from interfering with doctrinal matters and that's very often why uh, when cases go to court that involve religious freedom judges are very reluctant 
to actually uh, rule on as a doctrinal issue, because how can you do that without obviously interfering with religious freedom rights? But if you can tell them to change their constitution, then obviously that is a, an infringement and an incursion into areas where, frankly, the state has no business in getting itself involved with. Mm. I mean, Michael, I, I can hear, even as you're highlighting um, these various different areas of concerns, I can hear that there does need to be some kind of response um, on this bill, and it does need to be led by churches um, and by church leaders. Uh, you mentioned that the bill was open until the 10th of October. What can religious leaders do and organizations who are watching and listening to this interview, what can they do between now and then? Well, the best thing to do would be to go onto the forsa.org.za website and right at the top uh, in a slider image, you'll see that there's something that you can click to download submission, where we've essentially succinctly highlighted the sections of this bill that we believe are problematic. And we also give proposals as to what changes we would like to see so that, of course, uh, the concerns that we have are properly addressed. And again, the more support that that has when it comes now, which the hearings, by the way, are starting literally the day after comments close. So comments close on uh, Monday the 10th and and public uh, hearings open on the 11th, which again is... is, Ma- is Michael, they don't, they don't give themselves any time to read the comments, the, you know, and to, and to actually engage with the comments that they receive. I, I mean, is this not going to be another case such as the hate crimes bill where they get 100,000 comments and they just choose to ignore them? Well... <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll wait to, to see. We we have applied to make a verbal presentation for SA, uh, so we will definitely be setting out clearly uh, before the uh, Parliamentary uh, Portfolio Committee our concerns on this bill. And again, if people would like to CC us, um, you can do that at info at forsa.org.za uh, on a submission that you make as an organisation, then please do. And then we will also have a record. We have really received some uh, copies of submissions that have been made by different organizations but again it's it, it, it's another opportunity and i i, I think a, an important one to make our voices heard we're, we're not against the principle of what this bill is trying to achieve obviously mm, not yes, yes. um n- nobody wants to see money laundered for terrorist organizations but what we do want to make sure is that we don't at some point get caught by these unintended consequences and find it First of all, onerous on religious organizations, perhaps unnecessarily so, potentially carrying pretty serious sanctions for non-compliance. We think that what government should really do is to pick one route uh, and then stick with that and then educate and help the religious community uh, to do what would be reasonable and required. Michael, can I point listeners to your website if they would like to stay informed on this and other issues that are facing the religious community in South Africa and encourage listeners to follow Freedom of Religion uh, South Africa on Facebook um, and subscribe to the Freedom of Religion South Africa YouTube channel. Um, Is that helpful? Wonderful, yes. (laughs) Please, and stay informed. Uh, Obviously, these things suddenly come upon us. It's often a very fast-moving target. So... Please do stay informed. Please support 4SA. And we will certainly be standing on the front lines of faith and freedom for the faith community. Well, Michael, I I really appreciate all the good work that you guys do. And uh, do trust that the Lord continues to strengthen your arm as you represent the religious community in an ongoing discussion between the church and the state. Thanks, mate.
Thank you, Mark. God bless. Every blessing to you.